Amen. If we are able to remain standing, let's do so as we read together the words of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, good morning. It's uh, uh, good to be with you. Uh, this is actually my second time preaching in McGain. Uh, uh, my first time was oh, a quarter of a century ago when I was a student uh, at NTC uh, and uh, spoke at an evening service, uh, if I remember correct, correctly. So it's good, it's good to be back with you. It's good to spend time with uh, some of you and others from other ch- uh, churches uh, last night uh, at the event here. And um, my wife and I, we, uh, we went to uh, Greystones on tu- uh, Tuesday to visit our friends, uh, the pastoral ministry team uh, down there and so that we had a good time and then came up on the exceptionally cheap trains you guys do not take it for granted okay <laughs> you have cheap trains here uh, unbelievable a uh, lovely journey uh, uh, up and uh, uh, into uh, Northern Ireland and we've, uh, we've enjoyed our, our, uh, our stay here let's pray as we we delve into god's word father we thank you for your word it has timeless value it has spoken to every generation and will continue to do so lord we recognize the authority of it over our lives we thank you that your spirit breathes life into it and into us and lord we ask now that you would open our minds so that we can understand open our hearts so that we are willing to receive and then infuse us with resurrection power as we go from this place to be people who speak out in word and deed what your word speaks of. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I asked Sammy if he would do that uh, congregational reading. And I have to say, there's a, there's a bit of a sucker punch that comes with it. So you all stood of your own volition. You're invited to read it and you read it. How many of you can stand here and honestly tell me that you have experienced a life where you have never experienced any harm? I've asked this question in probably 30 congregations now and I'm yet to have anybody say, I have had a life free from harm. And so, why did you read it? It's your hope. But it's not happened. I've been spending quite a bit of time over the last few years trying to think about church, faith, life from the perspective of an atheist. What does an atheist observe? What does an atheist think when they attend? So imagine, imagine that there is, a, there is a wife who loves the Lord sincerely and her husband loves her but he doesn't love the Lord. And so the husband comes to church with his wife because he knows that it is important to her, but he doesn't believe. 
And so he sits dutifully in the service, week in, week out, and he goes through, he stands, he sits, he stands, he sits. There's nothing in his heart that is happening except for a love and a respect for his wife. And, and perhaps they were here this morning, and they were invited to stand, and he hears his wife's voice next to him proclaiming the words of that psalm. But he knows that her father died of cancer years ago, and she doesn't even have many memories of him anymore. He knows that they've gone through a couple of miscarriages over the last couple of years. He knows that she struggled with bullying when she was at school and people harmed her, and that even to this day, the insecurity that that instilled within her life has consequences. What does he think when she reads that psalm? Does he think, well, her God obviously doesn't love her? Does he think, well, that's not true? And if that's not true, I can reject the rest of the Bible. And I can reject the core message. Does he think that actually my wife's faith is admirable, but it's just superstitious nonsense? It's just trying to, to make herself feel good about the fact that life isn't good, and it's just a crutch that she's leaning upon, but actually it doesn't have any value. You see, the psalm is quite explicit, isn't it? Because it says, uh, the, the sun won't harm you by day and the moon won't harm you by night. So it covers. You're not going get, to get harmed while you're asleep or on a night shift. You're not going to get harmed during, during the day in your work and your leisure. The Lord will watch over you. He doesn't sleep. He's continually watching over you. Tell that to a Gazan refugee waiting at the Rafa gates this morning. Tell that to the... Ukrainian girl who went on a youth event with our church a couple of weeks ago who's living in a cockroach infested flat in London because it's not safe to be at home tell that tell that tell that to the many people who have experienced harm some of whom have experienced harm in the name of religion in the name of Jesus how do we deal with these verses? Shall we, just, shall we just all make a corporate decision now that we'll all open our Bibles, we'll gather any Bibles from the rest of the building and we'll just rip out Psalm 121 because that's a bit awkward. And okay, there's several hundred pages in the Bible, we can do without one. Do, is, is that what we do with it? How do we interact with these passages of the Bible? I'm going to share another one. It's already been quoted once this morning's service. And when I, when I started, immediately many of you who know the Bible will be able to finish the sentence once I've said the first couple of words. Probably even when I just say where it comes from. In Romans 8 it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God works for the good of those who love him. So that miscarriage was for your good. God, as a loving Heavenly Father, thought, oh, I'll send a miscarriage. And I apologise if I mention any illustrations that connect with anyone's life here. I don't know your life journeys, and, and so please, I say things with, with a deep respect for, for any pain in there. That was for your good. The fact that you were born into a family riddled with abuse was for your good. 
the fact that you were born into a family that was going to be made refugees as a result of war, that is for your good. God is working for your good. That is the goodness of God being poured into your life. Here, receive a beating, child. Your Heavenly Father loves you and he's given this for your good. He's working it for your good. What do we mean by this verse when we read this verse? When we, when we go into the Christian bookshop and we see it on a fridge magnet or we see it on a poster and we give it to somebody. What are we meaning by that verse? Or more importantly, what is scripture meaning? What was the Holy Spirit meaning when the Holy Spirit inspired the author Paul to write down those words? See, there's several problems with them. Because you notice it says that God's working for the good of those who love him. So by inference, do we take it that God isn't working for the good of those who don't love him? Hmm. Is this a God of favouritism? Is this a God that only works for those who like him? I don't know about you, but if, but if my government, I'm aware government is a bit of a t sticky topic here at the moment, uh, but, if, but, if, but if my government said to me, we, we have got a list of how everybody voted, and we're only going to turn the streetlights on outside houses where they voted for us. We're only going to collect the bins on the streets where they voted for us. I don't know about you, but I would immediately be outside Parliament saying, how dare you? You were elected to serve the people, and the people have a right to choose whether they like you, vote for you, appreciate you or not. And I would be saying that you are a despotic government, that you are behaving in a way that is unbecoming of the office which you hold, and you do not deserve to receive my respect, you do not deserve to have the power that you have and the authority that you have, and you need to step down from your office. And yet God is saying that he's working only for the good of those who love him. The most powerful being on earth is not working for your... The most powerful being, I was going to say in all creation, but he's beyond creation, isn't he? The most powerful being, the Lord Almighty, unless you love him, he's not working for your good. That sounds like a threat. And I don't know about you, but if, if that was true, my reaction... My personality is such that I would shake my fist and say, you will not receive my worship. And if, it, and if it costs me dearly, I will not worship you if you are a God who is despotic, if you are a God who, who, who has favourites, if you are a God who is only going to work for my good and you're going to work against me if I don't do as you want, if I don't love you as you would like. What do we do with these verses? How do we handle them? What are we meaning by them when we say them? What is scripture meaning when scripture says them? I was, on a, I was at a conference a few years ago. And they brought out onto the stage three couples. Now the couples all knew each other and they all knew what was going to happen. And that's important because otherwise it would have been quite traumatic for them. They knew what was going to happen. And couple num uh, number one walked out on stage. They gave them the microphone and they shared uh, their story. They had got married. They were a Christian couple. And uh, they loved God. And they wanted to have a family. They got pregnant. And then they went for one of the scans and discovered water on the brain. in Encephalitis, I think it's called. 
And so they were worried. They were advised to terminate the pregnancy, but as a result of their faith, they didn't want to do that, and they there was no risk to the mother's life. And, and so, so they decided to go full term and just see what would happen. And they called their church around, and people fasted, and people prayed, and they fasted, and they prayed. And they brought it before the Lord. And then, out from the stage, walked their child, alive, healthy, well. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Couple number two walk out on stage. Couple number two are given the microphone. Same story. Got married, loved the Lord. Wanted to have, a, a, a have children, got pregnant, went for a scan, water on the brain. Same thing, advised to terminate. They don't want to do, to do so. There's no risk to the mother's life. and So they go the full term. And then their child is brought out on stage. Their child was born alive, but with disabilities. <coughs> oh, half praise the Lord. Maybe God ran out of a bit of power. He was a bit tired after the first one. Or maybe, maybe God loved couple number one more than couple number two. Maybe couple number one had behaved better and had loved the Lord more, and so he had worked more for their good. Then came couple number three, who would come out, same story. They had no child. Child died mid-term. How, how do we allow all three of those couples to exist within the church? To read Psalm 121, to receive Romans 8 passages. How, how do all three of those testimonies, those stories, carry validity within the journey of faith, within the life of a faith community? Some of you are thinking, I wish I hadn't come this morning. <laughs> this preacher's a bit of a depressing one. Send him back to the South District. <clears throat> well, I trust you, we end in a better place. When you read through the Bible, one of the ways of understanding what the Bible is, is to refer to it as the story of God. And when you read a story, a good author, at the start of the story, they will introduce the character. But by the end of the story, you'll understand the character in greater depth. You'll have a greater appreciation because the story unpacks who the character is. And so if you think of scripture as the story of God, we are introduced to God and then we are introduced and there is an increasing revelation of who God is, the fullness of which is in Christ Jesus. And so there is this development. And when you read the early chronological bits uh, of scripture, there is no doubt about it. You can see in those passages regularly, you can see that if you love God and you live according to his commands, you will have many children, you will live a long life and you'll have lots of camels. That, that's basically the deal. And so you see it. And that became the theology of the day. That was how people uh, lived their life. That is how they understood what faith meant. Love God, lots of kids, old age, lots of camels, and, and land is now the other thing. And then comes, then comes, and thank God for the book of Job. It's like a bunion on the heel of wealth, health, and prosperity teaching. Because it just says, whoa, slow down a minute, because it's not that simple. That actually, the sun rises on the wicked as well as the righteous. Because sometimes people live a life of dealing drugs and they live a life of wealth. 
It happens. And sometimes good people suffer. And so you have Job, this character, who he's not sinlessly perfect, but he's a righteous man. He's loved God. He's done the best he can. And yet he suffers. He suffers profoundly. And his comforters come to him. And we view the comforters negatively. But that's because we have the value of hindsight. Those comforters were the church prayer ministry folk of the day. Because the, the theology of the day was, love God, your wife will bear you lots of children, you'll have land, you'll have lots of camels, and you'll live to a ripe old age. So they were just the church prayer ministry team that was sent round. And they were saying what the church prayer ministry team had been trained to say, which is, you must have done wrong here. And so you need to repent so that God can restore you. And Job, thankfully, resists their well-intended ministry. And he says, no, no, there's nothing. He's not claiming perfection, but he knows that this isn't like the prophet coming to David where you've got the story of Bathsheba in the background. That's not what's going on here. He's just suffering through no fault of his own. And the last thing he needed was somebody saying, well, God's working everything for your good. You see your dead kid in the coffin over there? That's for your good, Job. That's the last thing he needed anybody saying. <coughs> you see, if you think about it, for God is our Heavenly Father. Now, I do know that sometimes the suffering that we experience at this point in life does enable us to minister to other people at later points in life. Absolutely, of course it does. But... That's not what God's will and intention does. Because actually if I said to my oldest daughter Paige, Paige, I'm going to thump you in the face now because next week I'm going to thump your brother Micah in the face and I want you to be able to sympathise and comfort him when he's... You would ring social services on me. Quite rightly so. That would be a sick fatherly gesture. So God doesn't pour a little bit of suffering into your life because he's going to pour a little bit of suffering into somebody else's life and he wants you to be able to help them. That is a perverse picture of God. But all too often we use this Bible verse in that way. Well, God's working this for your good because he's moulding and shaping you so that you'll be able to help somebody else who he's going to abuse in the future. Somebody else who he's going to pour some suffering into in the future. No, that's not what's going on here. And that would be the worst thing that could have been said to Job or anybody else in their period of suffering. So thank God for the, for the book of Job that says, right, on this story of God, we've got a little bit of character development here. We've got to go deeper here. Humanity can no longer operate in this childlike, superstitious uh, type level of faith where we just think, well, if I be good, things will be good. It's more complicated than that. And so Job calls us to the deeper place, to the grappling with the, with the difficult questions. And the reality is that there are hundreds, in fact probably hundreds of thousands of people who are couple number three, who have only ever heard on the stage the testimony of couple number one. And they've seen the congregation go, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And they have silently wept in their pew and have walked out the door and one of them has had the courage to say to the other, let's not go back there again. And they now live distant from the church and distant from God. Because the theology that has been communicated to them is that God didn't love them as much as couple number one. Or that they didn't love God enough and, uh, enough, and so he wasn't working for their good as much as couple number one. And we have got to mould and shape our churches, our testimonies, our witness, our teaching, our, our discipleship, our prayer life. We've got to mould it all in such a way that we don't add to insult to the injury of couple number three. 
So how do we deal with these passages? Because the answer is not to rip Psalm 121 out of the Bible and never mention it. The answer is not to never quote Romans 8. The answer is not to avoid such passages. We need to grapple with them like the book of Job calls us to, to find the deeper places of faith, the place of a profound faith that actually fits all of life's circumstances. And so if the structure of your theology, if the structure of your faith, if the understanding of your relationship with God only works in your circumstances and doesn't work in the circumstances of a child in Darfur or a, a millionaire uh, in Los Angeles or whatever you're going to face next week or whatever your neighbour is facing at the moment, your theology has to fit all circumstances. And that is where we need to get to. Now the psalm is quite easy to deal with. Because you'll know the Psalms, in fact we've had two read in this service. There are Psalms which declare, God why have you forsaken me? And there are Psalms which declare, God you are with me to the very end of the age. There are Psalms that declare joy and there are Psalms that, 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 that declare depression. There is the whole gamut of human emotion and that's the beauty of the Psalms. You see we are not to take any one Psalm as a statement about all people all of the time throughout the whole of history. That is not the purpose of the Psalms. The Bible is a library that is made up of different books and each book is a different type of literature. And so when you have the poetry, you read the poetry in a different way to when you read the theological treatise. And if you read them both the same way, you'll end up in sticky waters. And so we read the Psalms as poetry and as poetry, here's the beautiful things that the Psalms do. The Psalm gives you permission to express every emotion that you experience. Do you know if you, you can do this if you want, use Google, use literature, go down to your local library. If you go and have a look at images of Jesus down through the ages that have been produced by uh, Euro uh, European uh, artists, you will find that the most common depiction, overwhelmingly so, is of the expressionless Jesus. There are very few that show him. You will have the ones on the cross sometimes that will show the pain. Generally speaking, Jesus on his day-to-day -day life images will be the expressionless Jesus. And that reflects something of the, the erroneous theology that has permeated much of the church in Europe for many of our centuries. The idea that emotions are a sign of weakness. In Britain, we have created a phrase for it. Keep a stiff upper lip. Don't let your lip quiver and let tears flow. That's weakness. In fact, keep calm and carry on. Well, I'm very sorry, but if you're going through a miscarriage, I'm telling you now, you don't have to keep calm and carry on. You can be a blubbering wreck and carry on. You can experience pain and carry on. You can express that pain and carry on. And the Psalms give you permission, indeed more than that, they give you the vehicle through which you can do so. Because you can kneel in your bedroom and you can cry out with the Psalmist, indeed you can cry out with Jesus and quote the Psalm, God, why have you forsaken me? And you don't have to feel guilt. It's not guilt, it's false guilt. You don't have to feel bad about struggling to stand up and sing the happy, clappy praise and worship songs. You shouldn't resent others for doing so. You shouldn't be angry at the pastor for choosing a psalm of joy as one of the readings. But if you need to sit silently and hear it, because at the moment you're struggling to proclaim it, 
because of life circumstances. You don't have to feel as if you're a second class Christian for that. You don't have to feel like somehow uh, you are letting God down for that. The psalmist gives permission for the full breadth of human emotions to be experienced. So when you get a, a promotion in work, when you have a new life that comes into your family, when you meet the love of your life, when you uh, pay off your mortgage, when your rugby team wins, if only, <laughs> you can cry out the joy of the Lord and you can celebrate and you can dance and you can sing jubilate. I'm not going to. <laughs> But equally, equally, when you are in pain and you have been made redundant, when, when your long-term chronic illness has not gone away and is particularly bad on a morning when you get up, when you have cried out to God for, for deliverance of some suffering that your family member is going to, you don't have to sing out jubilati. It might be that the Spirit brings you to a place where you can, but you don't have to feel guilty if all you can do is weep. Indeed, in the verses in Romans, just preceding the one that I quoted, it says that the Spirit intercedes with groans that we cannot comprehend. In other words, there are places that we can reach in life where we no longer have the eloquence to express the pain that we're going through, and we just have guttural cries that come up from within us. And most human beings will have reached a point in their life where they're curled up on the floor in pain and in agony and they don't have the words to express what they're feeling. And in those times the spirit intercedes and takes them to a place where they don't need to put words. The spirit just knows because God is with them in the pain. So that's how we deal with the Psalms. And if you have ever been in a place in life where you have felt guilty about the emotions that you have experienced as a result of the experiences of life that you have had, then be liberated from that guilt and receive the full volume of the Psalms and delve into them and take the Psalms of dereliction and make them your own and proclaim them just as Jesus did on the cross. And equally, if you have had times in your life uh, when you have been celebrating and you felt guilty about your celebration because you've been aware of the suffering of others, then be liberated from that false guilt and be free to express. Now, there are parameters. You see, I shouldn't express my joy in such a way that just heightens the suffering of someone else. And neither should I express my pain in a way that just snuffs out the joy of somebody else. Yes, there are parameters. But as we live in community and the tension of those things, scripture gives us permission. And sometimes the person that's celebrating will then weep with the person that's mourning. And sometimes the person that's mourning will find themselves able to celebrate with the person that's celebrating. And each can carry the other through the different seasons of life. So that deals with the Psalms, but what about Romans? Because Romans is not a book of poetry. Romans is a book of doctrine. Statements that are always true for all people all of the time. How do we deal with that verse? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Well, the key to unlocking that verse is just a verse later. For, God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So, God is working for the good what is the good? The good that God is working for is not that the water would disappear off the brain of the child that is in the womb at that scan, necessarily. Now hear me out, God can do miracles. God does do miracles, I believe that we have a God who does miracles. However, 
A miracle, by definition, is the exception rather than the rule. For every miracle, there is likely to be nine stories where a miracle didn't happen. If that wasn't the case, every single one of us would have a healing ministry in the hospitals of our town and our hospitals would be empty. But we don't have because we know that's not how it happens. God's good is not the alleviation of suffering, though one day he will wipe every tear. One day he will solve every situation. But that is the not yet of the kingdom of God. We live in the nowness of the kingdom of God. And in the nowness of the kingdom of God, the good that God is working for is to conform us to the likeness of his son, to make us like Jesus. And Jesus experienced great things and Jesus experienced terrible things. But in all of the things that he experienced, he never compromised on his humanity. He never compromised on holiness. He never compromised on his character. And so the good that Romans is speaking of, that God is working for in your life, is that you would remain Christ-like in all the circumstances of life. So that when you receive a promotion of wealth and riches and prosperity, that you don't become greedy, selfish, arrogant and prideful. That you remain a person of generosity. That you remain a person of humility. And that when you go through suffering and rejection and difficulties and illness, that you don't become a person of bitterness. A person who has lost their humanity. In Christ we see someone who can celebrate life and who can endure life, but who remains holy as a consistency. And that is the good that God is working for in our lives. And sometimes the miracle happens, and so there is nothing wrong with praying for healing, but our prayers for healing perhaps should be 10% of our prayer life, and 90% of our prayer life should be for Christ-likeness in the midst of the circumstances that we go through. Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But if it's not possible, if that's not the right thing, if that's not what's going to happen, keep me in line. Keep me holy. Make it so that I don't curse the prisoner, but that I tell him that he'll be with me in paradise, even though there's pain in my hands that would give me uh, every excuse to say something. Make me so that I can look down and care for my mother and my closest friends, even though there is pain coursing through every single bone of my body and every single fibre of my being, that I still have compassion for others. That is the good that God is working for. That also deals with the favouritism question. You see, if the good that he's working for is Christ-likeness, that makes sense of why he's only working that in those who love him. Because you see, if I don't love Jesus, why would I want to be like Jesus? And so God is not going to force something upon me that I don't want. What do we call people who force themselves upon somebody else? Sexual abusers, rapists and such like. And our God is not like that. He respects the free will of people. And so if people say, I don't love you, I don't like you, I don't appreciate you, God says, I respect your choice and I'm going to keep inviting you, I'm going to keep reaching out to you, I'm going to keep trying to give you opportunities to make a different choice, but I'm not going to force you to be like someone that you don't like. I'm going to respect your choice. So it's not favouritism, it's respect. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. God works all things together so that we can remain Christ-like in the midst of life's circumstances. And so that verse is not a fridge magnet that we should give to people in the midst of their suffering to say what you're going through is actually part of God's master plan and he wants you to experience that horrible circumstance. 
No, it's not that God wants anybody to suffer. It's that when anybody does suffer, God is not overcome by that. There is always resurrection that can happen. There is nothing that can happen that goes beyond the reach of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he does not cause the suffering, but the suffering does not overcome him. He overcomes the suffering by bringing Christ-likeness that can emerge in all circumstances for all people all of the time. And so the book of Romans is a doctrinal book, makes a statement that is true all of the time for all people. And so do not allow your suffering to become an excuse for sinfulness. And do not allow your, your victories to become an excuse for ignoring God. Everything that happens in life is within the reach of the cross and within the reach of who Jesus is and God can work it for your good. And there is nothing that this world needs more. This world does not need churches that are, that are proclaiming superstition. Come to Jesus and you'll be healed. And 90% of people walk away because they weren't healed and the church keeps promoting the 10% stories whilst pushing away 90%. And over generations, we end up with societies where people, the whole town, God doesn't do anything. Because we promoted that God's going to do the healing, but that's the exception rather than the rule. We need to be promoting that God's going to do the character building. God's going to equip you for life with its struggles and with its celebrations. And that needs to be our message because our world is crying out. They are crying out for a message where people can say, how can I handle this pain that I am going through? And if they could hear a church that said, we can help you handle the pain. We can make it so that the pain does not mould you to be less human than what you were before you experienced it. We can help you to discover a source of power and love that can make you into a more compassionate, a more generous person. And that is the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where there should be death, there is life. Yeah. And that is the message that we need to proclaim. And when the miracle comes, we thank God for it and we praise God for it and we give permission for the testimony. But couple number three also get the microphone and we weep with them. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for all of these good people here and I thank you, Lord God, that, uh, that you love us all. Lord, we live with the tension of the now and not yet of, the, of your kingdom. We long for the day when you will wipe every tear, when you will clear up every dispute, when there will be no more wars, no more conflict, no more pain, no more illness, no more suffering. But Lord, that is not yet. And so Lord, we pray, I pray for each of these people here, for those that are going through life and at the moment it seems like a breeze. I pray that you would mould their character so that their plenty would become a source for generosity, so that their celebration would become a source of encouragement to others. And I pray for those for whom life is difficult at the moment. And I pray that you would keep their hearts tender, that you would enable them to forgive the unforgivable, to still be generous when they are struggling to meet their own needs. And I pray, Lord God, that therefore the testimonies of Christ-like lives would ring out loud and clear that you are alive, that you have conquered sin and death, and therefore the future is sealed. That which is not yet is only that. It's not never. It's just not yet. <coughs> One day you will return, 
And Lord, may we encourage others to live in the anticipation of your return with the presence of your spirit moulding and shaping them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Carl. Just to say as well, if anybody um, feels that God has really been speaking to them this morning and has perhaps been affected by anything which, uh, which Pastor Carl shared with us, please do take the opportunity to either come and speak to myself at the end or even to Pastor Carl as well. And we would just love to, um, love to pray with you, love to weep with you, love to rejoice with you, um, whatever you feel. Uh, but if you have been affected, don't just leave this morning without chatting to somebody um, because we are a family and we do love each other and you are loved deeply um, but let's stand together if we're able to do so and we'll sing sovereign over us a, a song which speaks of God's love for his children and really summarizes a lot of what Pastor Carl was sharing with us this morning but let's stand let's sing together